the individual investor show. You bought it all, aren't you? You hear one thing, they all need money. Now let's see if they're brave enough to earn it. Hello, and welcome to the Individual Investor Show. My name is Jenna Brashear, your host for this evening. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you all had a wonderful week. According to a 2021 study by the Morgan Stanley Institute for Sustainable Investing, 79% of individual investors and 99% of millennials in the United States are interested in sustainable investing. However, it's important to understand what sustainable investing entails and how companies are graded, especially when it comes to avoiding corporate greenwashing. Tonight's event is the Individual Investor Show, the ESG Playbook for the Socially Conscious. So for this episode, Charles Rufflett and Anine Suss chat with Larry Swedrow about the challenges individual investors may face when investing in ESG securities in their article in the May 2022 issue of the AAII Journal. Swedrow also highlights a few key factors from his new book, Your Essential Guide to Sustainable Investing, which highlights how ESG ratings are impacting both individual investors and corporations. In the second part of tonight's broadcast, we asked Matt Batchkowski about his latest article in the May 2022 issue of the AAII Journal, The Difference Between Sustainable Investing and Impact Investing, which looks at investing with a focus on financial returns versus investing with a focus on social or ethical-based outcomes. But before we jump in, I do want to preface tonight's presentation by reminding our viewers that AAII is a nonprofit educational group and is not a financial advisor, and thus is not able to give personal advice. Every investor is different. That's why our goal with each broadcast and article is to educate you on how to make better financial decisions. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our presentation. But, uh, Larry, thanks for joining us. So socially responsible investing started off tied to religious values. How do you think SRI maintains its origin in a more secular world? Well, first of all, SRI, I think, has uh, started out, as you noted, as religious-based. The Quakers, for example, wouldn't buy companies related to guns. Then you got evolved over time into tobacco and alcohol, and then South African boycotts uh, was the thing in its day. But it's evolved to a much broader categories, especially with the concerns over climate change and also corporate governance. Uh, and so it's widened to an ESG and even now broader term called sustainability. But it, and then you even have another category we talk about in our book, your essential guide to sustainable investing, which is impact investing, where people uh, care not so much the prime motivation is not the return on investment, but having an impact on people and the planet. So SRI, ESG, people still, I want to express my values, but I want to meet my financial goals at the same time. And maybe I don't want to make any sacrifices there. And there are ways to do it by tilting the portfolio to factors that have higher expected returns like value, profitability, and quality uh, and size as well. Um, but impact investing is more like, I wanna fund a water well in Botswana so people could have clean water and we're gonna fund that and they'll be able to you know, generate income from that project but that, if it 
you know, if it doesn't get a good rate of return, I don't care so much about it. I'm really much more concerned about having an impact. And there are companies that focus on impact investing. In many cases, it's a global effort. Uh, in others, it's more doing work in your own community. Uh, and so everyone's going to have their own vision about what's important to them. I think the most important thing now is people have a wide variety of ways to look at this issue and they can choose the one that is most appropriate for them. Uh, and that leads to another question, and it's probably the paradox of, of SRI. Uh, when you look at cannabis companies, uh, like for instance, Canopy Growth broadly talks about its, its environmental uh, credentials. Um, I mean, and then also their social governance uh, as well. I mean, how do they fit into an SRI uh, strategy? Because, you know, from a SIN point, uh, cannabis definitely falls on the uh, SIN spectrum. Well, you hit on the central problem of this whole issue that we've been discussing. There are no right answers. <laughs> and it's really your own personal expression of values, right? Uh, so, you know, I know, and then by the way, just because you're a cannabis company doesn't mean you're good at the S and have diversity and treat women fairly and minorities and pay gaps. Doesn't mean you have good governance. Uh, you know, you have investor friendly rules and stuff like that, right? You could be bad on those things and maybe be environmentally friendly. And what about, uh, I guess, in terms of U.S. corporations, uh, what impact is sustainable investing having? Um, not just, you know, obviously BlackRock's Larry Fink, but all this money moving into uh, ESG and SRI type investments. Yeah, as we discuss in the book, we have a whole chapter dedicated to the question uh, of are ESG sustainable SRI investors impacting corporate behaviors in a favorable way? And all of the research is consistent right across the board, showing that because companies who have bad scores end up with lower PEs, uh, uh, and that means a higher cost of equity capital, they pay higher interest costs on their debt, uh, they have a harder time attracting employees, their employee satisfaction is not as high, which means their employees they do get, are less productive. Um, and so companies are reacting uh, very favorably to keep or gain a competitive advantage by having a higher ESG score. That means company, you know, investment companies will allocate more capital to them. Their cost of capital goes down. That gives them more ability to make investments in cleaner energy and uh, uh, new technologies. And that creates this virtuous circle. And the evidence is very clear on across the board. It's having an impact on how they're treating employees uh, and how they're even branding to try to create better images and being more aware uh, of the impact it does have on their cost of capital. Great. Yeah, and one positive of sustainable investing seems to be a reduction in risk at the company level. Could you explain why? Yeah, clearly companies that have good e-scores are less subject to having, you know, environmental risk problems that create massive losses like Exxon Valdez, for example. 
Uh, you have less risk of oil spills. You have a good governance. There's less risk of fraud. If you have, you know, bad S, you're likely to get a lot of bad publicity, and then you can have consumer boycotts of your products. All right. And so companies are really becoming very conscious of this. And the research does show that companies with poor ESG scores do have more tail risk. They're more subject to these big surprising shocks that can happen. And we just had a test of that uh, in with COVID and the green companies did actually perform better. But the research going back further than that shows that they tend to have better risk controls uh, and therefore there's less tail risk and investors hate tail risk. They don't like risk in general, uh, but when that left tail risk shows up and the stocks get hammered, that's what they want to avoid. And you're willing to pay a price to avoid that risk and accept lower returns. That's a good trade-off. By the way, that's why stocks in general have had such high returns over the cent last century, because boy, they certainly have tail risk. And we saw a 60% drop in uh, 2008 and 35% drop in, with COVID and almost 90% drop in the Great Depression. That's tail risk. And we know investors hate tail risk and that's why they in general don't, you know, are not willing to pay very high PEs to own stocks, except when we get bubbles. <laughs> then they forget history and get too enthusiastic. And, and then I guess on the investing side, uh, when I did a search on our site, it looked like about 60% of the ETFs labeled by Morningstar as being sustainable investments have been in existence for three years or less. Um, any suggestions for how an investor might go about choosing an ETF given so many have limited histories? Yeah, well, first of all, let me say that uh, Wall Street is great at creating demand for product where there shouldn't be any. So things like SPACs uh, and thematic ETFs, you know, the history of the industry, even before there were ETFs, but with ETFs now, you get all these new themes popping up. And what the research shows is they all have some common characteristics. They're very high beta stocks and the worst performing stocks, the evidence shows over the long term are stocks with high betas. Their average beta is 1.2. So they're 20% more risky and they are less profitable. They have negative loadings on the profitability factor and more profitable companies have outperformed less profitable companies. So generally they're bad investments. And yet as soon as they created cash is flowing in because Wall Street is creating products probably by looking at Twitter and other things to see what people are interested. And then they roll out these products. What I would be most concerned about is not necessarily how long the fund is in existence, but how long the management team has been in existence and what is their discipline. So if Dimensional Fund Advisors comes out with a new product, I'd have no problem investing with it immediately because they have a 40 or more year history of extremely disciplined investing based purely on the academic research. If a company like Vanguard came out with a product, I would feel similarly uh, about that. On the other hand, if you got 
you know, Kathy Woods coming out with something, I'd run as fast as I could. <laughs> and I guess just relates to this question on investing, I guess this is more philosophical, but um, if an investor wants to do good with their wealth, um, obviously at one end of the spectrum is maximize your returns as much as possible and then use it. Um, and then obviously the other end is fall, incorporating SRI fully into your portfolio strategy. Uh, for investors trying to choose between these, uh, I guess, extremes, any suggestion on how they can yeah. go about it? Well, one strategy, as you point out, is to say, and let's just assume we're now in this new equilibrium and you're not going to see any preference overall. So, uh, meaning if ESG's got 80% of the investments, that number is not going up. So cash flows in, so it doesn't change valuations, right? So one thing to say, okay, boy, now all this has happened, I can get a big premium by investing in those brown or sin stocks. Maybe let's call it, it's 3% a year. So I'm gonna, to pick a number, let's say you had a million dollar portfolio, 3% a year is 30 grand, right? I'm gonna take that 30 grand and invest it directly, not invest it, but make a charitable contribution to the causes I am most passionate about and I can make a direct impact doing it that way. That's a perfectly rational strategy. I would have no problem with that at all. On the other hand, somebody's on the other extreme and says, I really care. I don't want to invest and support any companies that aren't doing everything right in this ESG. So I'm going to you know, invest in that way and I'll create my own portfolio. But even those people can say through a separate account manager, I'm gonna only invest with companies that meet my criteria, but then I'm going to tilt the portfolio in the same way Dimensional Fund Advisors does and other fund families like Avantis uh, and others to, so it looks like a smaller cap value, high profitability fund. And those stocks that have those characteristics have outperformed over the long term by several percent, let's say the same 3%. So in that case, you could have your cake and eat it too. But now you don't look like anything like the market, right? And when you go through periods like 96 through 99, and 17 through 19 or 20, then you're gonna way underperform the market, but you shouldn't care. You made a decision. I wanna express my values. I'm in it for the long-term. And over the long-term you get those higher expected returns, but you have to be willing to ignore the benchmark of the market. But you said, I don't want the market because I don't wanna be in energy stocks or sin stocks or others, and they're in the market. So why should you care? But people do, sadly. So one thing I do tell people is this, it is far more important to choose a strategy that you will stick to than to choose a strategy with the highest expected return. <laughs> because if you won't stick to it, the risk will always show up and then you will panic and sell because you're not committed to it. You don't have the faith and confidence. And every risk strategy I know goes through long periods of underperformance. So people, for example, uh, look at the, what I call the black winter for value stocks, 
which was 17 through 20, was the biggest drawdown in history for value, worse than the dot-com bubble by quite a bit. And then they say, well, why do I want it? The air is different. No, nothing's different. The same thing happened exactly, basically, in 98 and in other periods where we had bubbles in growth stocks. And then they burst and things go back to normal. Okay. It's just that you don't have the patience and discipline. So I point out I, you know, this fact. If you invested in the S&P 500, there are three periods of at least 13 years where they underperformed totally riskless treasury bills. 17 years is the longest from 66 to 82. 13 years was recent, 2000 through 12, and 15 years from 29 to 43. So the very same people who say, Larry, you know, look how badly value did. It did so poorly in that period that now even if you go back 15 years, it underperformed. Uh, the same people who ignore the fact that the S&P underperformed for far longer periods. <laughs> and that's against T-bills. The value stocks did, did well, you know, in terms of outright returns, just dramatically underperformed the glamour stocks. Now that still is underperformance, but if you're willing to stick with it, today value stocks are as cheap almost as they've ever been, even though they've dramatically outperformed since around October of 2020 by quite a bit. Uh, and I, if you just look at valuations today, you should expect that value stocks are going to outperform by more than their historical average because they're way below their historical price gap between. And by the way, the same thing is true about emerging markets and international, which underperformed the last decade, but outperformed from 2000 to 10, outperformed in the 70s and 80s, but everyone forgets they're subject to this recency bias. So I do want to emphasize whatever strategy you're going to do and adapt, make sure it's one that you will stick to because that fits your belief system and you're willing to live with it and ignore what I call the noise of the market. Good advice. Thanks, Larry. Um, Anine, anything else that we didn't cover? Oh, that was, that was great. Thank you so much. You gave us so much. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Uh, so hopefully, you know, for those who are interested, we wrote this book, uh, Your Essential Guide to Sustainable Investing, because we felt there was no book out there at all uh, that did anything more than tell you about the history of the SRI ESG movement, but no, there was no book that showed you what the academic evidence has to say and economic theory has to say about the risks and rewards of investing in ESG, how ESG investors are impacting companies and and the planet and employees in positive ways and actually how to implement the strategy. Um, so we're real pleased and we uh, were, of course, very pleased to have Burton Malkiel write a great forward uh, for the book. And we've already heard from college professors that they intend to use this book in their classes to teach ESG investing. And my last comment is one of the nice things about reading any of my books is I'm always happy to answer any questions from readers. I put my email address there and I answer everyone. So that's another benefit of reading the book. <laughs> that's great. No, it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but you always write great Charles, books. I appreciate it. What I need you now to do is 
go on Amazon and write a review. Uh, okay. Anyone else who reads the book, uh, do that and you know, use your social media to spread the word. And I think if the more people read the book, I think we will get more people investing sustainably in a more intelligent way as well. They'll be mm -hmm. more informed. And I think we've showed them the way that they can actually get better returns while living their values at the same time. Thanks so much for making time to chat with me today about the article in the May AAII journal, The Difference Between Sustainable Investing and Impact Investing. Hey, Jenna. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining. And uh, I just wanted to jump right in and ask you uh, my first question about your article. Um, so in your article, you begin with the topic of socially responsible investing, also referred to as SRI. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background on what that means and how this movement first started? Yeah. Yeah. Um... So when we're looking at sustainable investing as like a, a big topic, um, there's there's smaller subcategories and socially responsible investing uh, is one of those. Um, it from an investor standpoint, it's still a process of looking to maximize your returns at a given level of risk. Um, but the main difference um, is that you're being socially responsible. So it's some type of uh, ethics or morals uh, that are coming from um, your social, uh, your culture, um, and that's impacting what you choose to invest in. Um, so particularly um, a, a good historical example that I read about um, had to do with the, the Quakers. Um, and in, it was the 18th century. Um, the uh, they put out a, a, a uh, sort of like a fact sheet, right, um, about businesses to avoid investing in investments to avoid that were profiting off of uh, at that time slave labor. Um, so, what that example shows is that socially responsible investing. Um, its main purpose is to take the, the entire universe of available investments, but then kind of carve out little um, sectors or industries or companies um, that don't fit your, your um, ethical or moral um, values. Um, so ma mainly it just has to do with uh, segmenting parts of the market that um, you don't want to invest in. But from there, from there on out, um, you're still looking to do the same things that any other investor is looking to do. Um, so it's really, it's just specifically saying no to certain types of investment. Really interesting. I didn't know that, you know, a for a lot of people, you know, uh, SRI or, um, you know, socially responsible investing is quite new, but I didn't realize that the roots are actually dated back, you know, uh, over a hundred years ago or more. Yeah, and I, I think the when you think about any type of uh, personal uh, choice or customization you put into your investing, um, I think even you could probably say like, you know, like Islamic finance laws kind of fall under the socially responsible investing, right? It's creating a set of rules that apply uh, before you make the investments um, based on uh, your day-to-day -day culture. Makes sense. And um, 
I, I wanted on the other side of things, you know, uh, a lot of people have heard about the, or, or have heard the term ESG. So I just wanted to kind of go into that and ask you, you know, um, how, uh, what is ESG? And then also um, are, how are companies striving to adopt um, ratings or anything to do with uh, ESG factors? Yeah, so where socially responsible investing um, is more so about a process uh, where we're looking first at sectors and industries that you don't want to invest in and then moving forward. Um, ESG uh, in its present state is more about developing um, a separate rating system. Um, the equivalent, say, of a, a ratio such as like the price to earnings ratio or uh, the dividend yield. Um, so ESG is looking at factors of uh, E is environmental. So that would be uh, perhaps carbon data if a company has that. Um, the S factor is social. Um, that has to do with particular how they treat their employees, uh, their customers and their suppliers. Um, and then the G is, is governance. So it's, it's how the board is operating in, with its shareholders. Um, so the difference for ESG in developing a rating system is that you're not looking to first eliminate um, parts of the market or uh, the way you are with socially responsible investing. What you're looking to do is take a, a, a grade, um, much the way AI stock grades can be used. And that way you can relativize uh, a company's performance um, based on these factors. Um, you know, I think, Certain companies are more so striving to adopt these ratings and factors. Um, but I think the, the pressure will come when there is um, more regulatory oversight, which I, I do think is coming. Um, but the, what constitutes ESG is more so a, a, an alternative rating system or an additional, uh, is probably a better way to put it, rating system. And when it comes to these ratings, um, is there a leader in ESG investing? And why is this the case uh, as they're classified as like a leader? Yeah, um, I'd say really BlackRock is probably the, the leader in, in ESG investing. Um, and I think primarily it has to do with um, their role as one of the, the largest uh, fund managers and advisors, uh, you know, between them and Vanguard. Uh, you're most likely invested in, in one of one of the two somewhere. Um, I, I think BlackRock uh, BlackRock does a lot of business in, in on the private side and portfolio customization. Um, and like I mentioned, that's kind of the basis almost of socially responsible investing is this customization. Um, so I think they see a lot of granted that this is a ESG and sustainable investing are kind of having a, you know, if they kind of existed before on the fringes or implied in businesses, it's very explicit now. And there seems to be an explicit market that's coming for it. Um, I think BlackRock wants to be, or has decided to be that leader, um, you know, basically be the market maker for it if they can. Um, and so I think from their, their private side, they probably already have, uh, you know, systems and processes in place to, to uh, 
customize these portfolios for their investors that want to put uh, ESG focus on. Um, and then I just, I think from the standpoint of creating the market or creating a new business segment, um, BlackRock has the reach to do that. Uh, and I think they've just kind of decided to make the, the, the business sense to, to, to be that leader. Um, I mean, as far as access to data too, being such a large company, they're able to um, pivot off that size uh, and, and probably get better quality data uh, across a wide amount of uh, companies and industries and then actually take the power to implement that into uh, their you know, portfolio selection options. And, um, and you know, if, if AEI members are looking for ESG screens or other resources, um, can they find those things on our website? Yeah, they can. Um, specifically for members, um, you can find out whether a fund or an ETF has an ESG focus um, on their individual evaluator pages. So if you type um, either the name of a fund or its ticker into the search box at the, the top of the AAII website, um, you know, that'll take you to its individual evaluator page, which it'll say there. Um, also, members all have access to our annual uh, fund and ETF guide. Uh, and that it itself also has uh, a socially responsible uh, column that you can sort um, all the funds that are in the guide on. Um, if you're an A plus investor subscriber, um, you also additionally have access to um, our ETF and mutual fund screeners. Uh, those are using the same data that the, the guides are using. So that's coming from Morningstar. So it also has um, access to that same uh, socially responsible category that Morningstar produces. Um, so the, the difference there is in the screener, you can screen specifically based on that. Um, so yeah, if you're an A-plus investor subscriber, uh, you could utilize a specific screen to do that. That's excellent to hear that we have some, you know, great resources for members to get in, you know, invested and start, you know, learning about ESG or, you know, socially responsible investing if they, if they want, are interested. So that's excellent. Um, and then I did want to, you know, in the second portion of your article, you, uh, you delve into impact investing. So I, I wanted to ask you if you could give us some background on this type of investment style and how it differs from um, socially responsible SRI or ESG ratings. Yeah. So where ESG is, is a kind of a rating that applies to everything, uh, socially responsible investing is, is kind of a, a customization of your, your investment portfolio. Uh, impact investing is making it's closer to charity and philanthropy um, than the other two uh, ESG and SRI. Um, here we're talking more about um, the emphasis on say forming a nonprofit that tackles uh, one specific issue. Um, but with impact investing, uh, lately the turn has moved into even uh, having for-profit companies um, you know, the idea being that if you can create a, a for-profit business um, that is making a difference in, in sustainable ways. So, you know, you could be choosing any type of ESG focus, right? You might want the business to focus on environmental concerns. You might have a social concern um, or maybe you have a, a, a governance concern. Um, 
And in some cases, impact investing is about being an active shareholder. So uh, that does apply. Um, but, but very specifically, this is about kind of forming a business that can, uh, on the, when, it, when it's a for-profit business, it's something that can uh, maintain itself over time uh, and be both a profitable investment for shareholders, um, but also make a long-term uh, difference. The idea being that um, when you're just looking at, say, a fund or something more passive, um, it's harder to ascertain or feel that impact of what um, your investment is doing on an ESG basis. Um, so that it's more so about um, making a very specific uh, kind of institutional uh, investment and impact. And I wanted to ask you about the limitations that you know uh, that individual investors may face in regarding in regards to finding impact investments and actually investing in this sector. Yeah, so because impact investing tends to fall more towards um, the philanthropic side of investing, um, from most individual investors, you know, the, the vast majority, it, it, it's going to be very, very hard to, to invest in. Um, you know, most, most of what impact and most of impact investing is going to take place uh, in the, the private equity sphere, um, which means it's really going to be available to institutions, foundations, um, or high, high net worth individuals that meet the uh, accredited investor um, standards. Um, so the, you know, the tough part with uh, equity investments in private companies uh, is that you know, the shares are unlisted. So uh, it's not regulated to the same extent. Uh, there's little public information available. Uh, and also there's this idea of your money being locked in. So uh, it's pretty typical for these investments since, since it's not publicly traded, uh, it's not liquid. Um, so when you're making a, a private equity investment, it's kind of under the idea that your money is going to be locked down for, you know, at least five, if not kind of 10 years is kind of, uh, what, what, what could be expected. So, you know, individual investors really benefit from liquidity. Um, so the fact that, uh, this is mostly happening in the private non-liquid market uh, makes it pretty hard for individuals to get into. That's really good to know. And, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, after doing a lot of research for this article and going into all the different aspects of SRI and impact investing and ESG ratings, um, you know, what is your own take or perspective on SRI and ESG investing? And what do you learn? What did you learn from, um, you know, your research and what, what do you think is going um, to be in the next, you know, couple of years? Like, what can we expect? Yeah, well, I, I, hard to tell the future, right? But my hope is that um, much in the same way that uh, say like a hundred years ago, right? Um, the federal government brought in, uh, you know, Kennedy Sr. Uh, to, to, I think be the first chair of the SEC. Uh, um, and basically they brought him in because they needed regulation. Uh, there wasn't enough ongoing at that time. Uh, you know, we had issues with the stock market leading up to the Great Depression. Um, and there was a realization that more needed to be done. Um, I think the market 
will continue to demand um, more certainty uh, and, and less uncertainty when it comes to ESG uh, ratings. Um, I think that ESG as a, a grade uh, will continue to be probably the norm in terms of how we think about these things being applied to investments going forward. Um, you know, the, the kind of debate, I think, philosophically for ESG is, isn't business already sustainable? Shouldn't a business already want to perpetuate itself? And um, I think the answer is yes, of course. Um, but the, the issue, no matter what, is there, there, there are always going to be blind spots um, in, in our thinking and seeing. Uh, and I, I think what ESG is trying to do is, is shine some light uh, on some of those blind, blind spots, some of those inefficiencies that businesses have. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, granted, the market will, will, will punish you no matter what if your, your business is being too inefficient. But I think there's something to be gained from a broader knowledge of, of how much more efficient companies can be. Um, and a lot of them won't be held to that if they're not challenged or graded in some way. Uh, I think so that's where ESG will, will really continue to push. Um, as far as socially responsible investing, um, I think that's gonna continue to be important um, as a source of portfolio uh, customization. Um, but from there, that's more so dependent on the, the consumer or the individual investor themselves, right? How deeply do you wanna be involved uh, with your portfolio? Are you, some people are gonna very much so wanna be involved with uh, that customization process. Um, but I'm guessing the majority of investors will be passive. Uh, so I think, Socially responsible investing is never going to go away, um, but I think the where the 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 future is going to lie is is in the the more the more concretization, if that makes sense, of ESG as a grade. I tend to agree with you. I, you know, I see that a lot of people, you know, really interested and invested in, you know, learning about ESG ratings and hoping that they, you know, um, bring more regulation, like you said, and also, you know, have a little bit more transparency than they do now. So I definitely see it growing as a sector, but maybe, you know, people, um, you know, making critiques, you know, to make it better as a whole. So I, I tend to yeah. agree. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for uh, chatting with me, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jenna. And I just want to remind uh, viewer, uh, viewers that, um, they can access the latest journal issue um, and all the articles uh, within by visiting aaii.com slash journal. And uh, yeah, thanks again for uh, delving into your article with me today. And I really appreciate it. And now for a message from our friends at Discover Bank. We know as individuals interested in building investor wealth, you never want your money to be idle. Even small dollar amounts for short amounts of time should be working for you. With that, we're pleased to share information from our partner, Discover Bank, on deposit accounts that keep your money moving. You can choose from several options to help you meet your short-term or long-term financial goals. The best part? All of the deposit accounts offer preferred member rates. Take a look. With Discover, you can earn over five times more interest than the national savings average with preferred member rates and pay no fees. That's no fees, period. Plus, no minimum balance is required. 
You can access your AAII member savings account with Discover Bank from your smartphone or tablet, so it's easy to keep your money moving in the right direction. Open an AAII online savings account to start saving for the future today. Visit aaii.discoverbank.com to learn more. Did you know through Discover Bank, AAII members have the opportunity to save with high-yield CDs, savings and money market accounts, and as well as IRA CDs? Also, AAII members receive preferred member rates on all Discover Bank products. You can visit aaii.com slash savings products to learn more and open an account today. We hope you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. I want to thank Charles Rathlett, Anine Suss, Larry Swedrow, and Matt Bajkowski for making time to discuss these important topics with us. I think a good takeaway from tonight's interviews is that both ESG and SRI investments can be beneficial for your overall portfolio. However, you should always do your own research before investing in either of these sectors. And as always, please remember to click the subscribe button if you'd like to be alerted of future II shows. You can always catch a replay of tonight's event by visiting our YouTube channel. And make sure to register for upcoming AAI events and webinars by visiting aaii.com webinars. And if you're an investor on the go and want to catch the II show while driving or going for your daily walk, you can now follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and more. Also, members can read both articles in the AAII Journal, plus so much more, by visiting aaii.com journal. And with that, we wish all of you viewing good health, good fortune, and a great evening. Thank you and happy investing. <laughs>